Good morning. Hey, if you didn't get a chance, uh, feel free. If you want to pull up message notes, you can just zoom in on that QR code, and it'll take you to some access for the message notes. Uh, or you can always like just save that as a, a little uh, website on your, your phone. It's just that website down there, gatewaychurch.net slash info. So we are in the second week uh, and final week of a message in our second installment of our Origin Stories series. In this series, what we're doing is we're looking at some people and events in the history of Christianity that, that had a huge impact. Maybe you remember last year at this time in November, uh, we, we looked at the early church period of history. And if you remember, it was marked by severe persecution of the church. So for this follow-up series, what we're doing is we're looking at the middle ages of church history. And we're only doing this in two weeks, so there's no way that we can cover all of the middle ages of church history in that time. So what we're doing is we're simply highlighting two of the biggest topics of this era. Last week, we looked at the rise of monasticism, and today we're looking at the Crusades, which is quite an unusual topic for Family Sunday, right? Um, So we try and do a Family Sunday every fifth Sunday uh, in in the calendar year, and we generally don't adjust our preaching uh, schedule to accommodate this. And and maybe you're asking, well, why? Why wouldn't we, like, change things around for Family Sunday? There, There are different methods to this, but our reason is where our children and students have their own age-appropriate teaching week in and week out normally on Sundays, we still want them to be able to experience what it's like here on a regular Sunday so that when they graduate, we want them to be able to transition smoothly. So I will try and lighten up this topic as much as I can, but we still, again, want to give them a feel for what it's normally like in here. So last week, again, we looked at this rise of monasticism. When I, when I say monasticism, think of monks and nuns. These are people who withdrew from society, either individually or as a group, and they did this to to slow down and to enjoy the presence of God. It really represented this idea of giving up on society and withdrawing to a quiet life. And, And while there were some great things that came out of monasticism and some very noble pursuits, overall we said that that Jesus never really intended for us to live in isolation away from the world. Instead, we are, we are not to be of the world, right? As Christians, we are to be different than the rest of the world in the way that we think, in the way that we live, in the way that we act. So we're not of the world, but we have been sent into the world. Our mission is not to disassociate from the world, disconnect from the world. We are sent into the world on mission for gospel advancement through disciple-making. So if monasticism represented this quiet life withdrawn from the world, the Crusades fall on the extreme opposite end of the spectrum. It represented the idea of heavily engaging with society and actually forcing others to accept our beliefs and standards. So let's get into a little bit of history. How did the Crusades get started? Well, initially, it all centered around Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem has special meaning to Jews, Christians, and Muslims. All, all consider this to be a, a holy city, all of these major religions. So for the Jews, Jerusalem was the center of worship. This was where the temple had stood. For Christians, Jerusalem was the place where Jesus died and was buried. And then for Muslims, Jerusalem is the third most holy city to them. They believe that the prophet Muhammad ascended to heaven from there. By the time of the Middle Ages, followers from all three of these major religions, they were making pilgrimages or these religious journeys to Jerusalem. But also by this time, the Muslim world was growing. 
The Muslim world stretched from India to Spain, and it included Jerusalem and the Holy Land. So it became harder and harder for Christians to make their way to journey to Jerusalem as various Muslim groups started to struggle for power. And there were reports of mistreatment of Christians by the Muslims. The Byzantine emperor Alexius, he feared the spread of the Muslim Seljuk empire toward his own land, and he saw this becoming a threat to the Christian city of Constantinople. So he made an appeal to the Pope at the time. So the Pope at this time was a man named Pope Urban II. And so this emperor, Alexius, he he asked the Pope to help him, and the Pope put out a plea to Christians that they would rise up and they would go fight the Muslims and take back the Holy Land. Now, if you're not familiar with Muslims, Muslims practice a religion called, does anyone know? Islam. Islam. Islam got started in the 7th century, 600 years after Christ. And it started uh, with the supposed revelations and teachings of Muhammad. After Muhammad's death in 632, the religion really took hold in the Arab world. In the Arab world, those people were and are the descendants of Ishmael, who was the son of Abraham and Hagar. If you remember, Hagar was Abraham's wife's handmaiden. And you can find the story in Genesis 16. But God had promised that he was going to bless Abraham and that out of Abraham he was going to form this new nation. But Abraham had no children. So how could a nation come about, uh, a nation of people from his descendants, if he had no children? So Abraham tried and tried with his wife Sarah, but they could not have children. And they were getting up there in age. And so Abraham and Sarah decided to take matters into their own hands not showing trust in God. So Abraham took Sarah's servant, Hagar, and had a child with her named Ishmael. This was not God's plan. God would later allow Sarah to become pregnant in her old age, and they would have a boy named Isaac. That was God's plan. But we see in this decision that Abraham made to not trust in God and to take matters into his own hands, that the descendants of Ishmael, not God's plan, and the descendants of Isaac, God's plan, they have clashed ever since. We are still feeling the repercussions of this thousands of years later. Now let me remind you, or maybe tell you if you don't know this, that Islam, along with all other world religions, it is in opposition to Christianity. Don't miss this. The number of Muslims worldwide has increased from 200 million in 1900 to 551 million in 1971 or 1970, and it's tripled since then to 1.6 billion people worldwide by 2010. It now stands in 2020 at about 1.8 billion people, which is over 24% of the world's population. That's how many Muslims there are in this world. It's, it's the majority religion in 49 countries already. It is growing, and it stands in direct opposition to Christianity because they reject the Trinity. They claim that Jesus was just a prophet, only a prophet. They don't believe that Jesus died on a cross. They look to the Koran as their final authority, and they believe that paradise can be attained through keeping their five pillars instead of salvation by God's grace through repentant faith in Jesus. And so kids and and students, you may have already heard this or you will hear this one of these days, 
that all religions are basically the same. That is absolutely not true. The Bible teaches that the only way to eternal life with our Heavenly Father is through Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ alone. Any religion that teaches otherwise is a false gospel. It is a false teaching. So back to the Crusades. Again, this Pope Urban II, he put out this plea for Christians to rise up and to fight the Muslims, and many responded by taking up the cross. They cut out these red crosses, and they sewed them into their tunics. And here's kind of a a drawing of a crusader. Some of you may be familiar with the uh, video game Assassin's Creed. And there's one Assassin's Creed video game called Assassin's Creed Knights Templar. And it's based on this military order during the Crusades. And and these people, would they were setting out to, to protect Christians as they journeyed into Jerusalem after the Christians had recaptured the Holy Land in the First Crusade. And so they would wear something like this in their armor. Well, in 1096 AD, we have the launch of the First Crusade, but there would be many to follow. Historians typically say that there were nine crusades in all, and the last one was in 1271 AD. So for almost 200 years, these crusades were going on. Over the course of two centuries, the crusades consisted of many battles. There was a lot of bloodshed, a lot of death. Thousands and thousands of people died, Muslims, Jews, and Christians. There there was a people's crusade, a prince's crusade. There was even a children's crusade. And unfortunately, that that did not end very well for children. It's reported that about 10,000 Christians joined the very first crusade. So how is it? Why, Why is it that so many Christians jumped on board with this fight? Well, many believe that it was a noble cause. The crusade was considered by many to be a Christian pilgrimage, something that you should want to do. Some Some looked at passages like Matthew 10, 32 through 39 for their reason to join the Crusades. In this passage, Jesus said this. He said, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I I will disown before my Father in heaven. And he says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. So it was a literal like, taking of this verse here, these verses, that, that Jesus didn't come to bring peace, right? And so they believed that he was coming to bring war. Verse 37, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And then he said, Forever, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Remember, these, these crusaders thought that they were taking up their cross. That's why they put on this red cross on their tunic. And he says, whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. But many jumped into this fight, into these crusades for another reason. You see, when Pope Urban II and then successive popes and other church leaders, when they put out their appeals for people to join in the crusades, they made the people a promise. They promised them complete absolution, meaning that this, that they promised them forgiveness of sins to the crusader. And if you couldn't go yourself, well, you could pay for someone else to go, and you got the same level of forgiveness. Now, in case you don't already know this or haven't figured this out yet, this is also a false gospel. No one can promise you forgiveness of sins apart from Jesus. Like signing up for the crusades, going on a mission trip, serving in the nursery, taking care of the church property, putting money in the offering, 
No one can promise you forgiveness of sins for doing certain acts. That, that would be like me going, hey, as a church leader, if you'll pay for my daughters when they go to college, if you'll pay for their college, uh, I'm going to give you a free ticket to heaven, right? I can't do that. I also can't stop you from paying for my daughters to go to college either, right? <laughs> but it would be an abuse of power, right? So the people of the Middle Ages, they were largely illiterate and they were uninformed. This time period was also called the, the Dark Ages. In a lot of ways, Europe was in decline and many church leaders were more interested in getting and keeping power and wealth rather than spreading the gospel. Many of the popes at this time, they were actually more powerful and were wealthier than the political leaders. And so if they said it, then people believed it, and they blindly obeyed it. You know, there are certain responsibilities that come with the privilege of teaching God's word, and many people have used the pulpit or a pub, pub table, whatever. <laughs> uh, many of people have used their position, their pulpit, their table for personal gain. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should, should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So if I abuse or misuse my position, and if I'm not careful with what I teach, then shame on me. And I should be judged more strictly. But if you take what I say as gospel truth, just because I'm preaching, just because I have a microphone or a degree, and you take it without measuring it up against the Bible, then shame on you. Because I have been known to unintentionally make a mistake. I believe it's happened twice in my life, possibly. So back to the Crusades. Again, the original motivation of the Crusades was to reclaim from the Muslims the land that once belonged to Christians. These Muslims invaded these lands and brutally oppressed, enslaved, deported, and even murdered the Christians living in those lands. And so in, in, in some ways, their actions to stop the Muslims could be justified. Like you could justify a war to defend the defenseless. But, but the actions that many of these so-called Christians took in the Crusades was deplorable. There's no biblical justification for conquering lands, murdering civilians, and destroying cities in the name of Jesus Christ. The name of Christ was abused, misused, and blasphemed by the actions of many of the Crusaders. Some historians would argue that while the primary motive for for the Crusades, it may have been religious and may have been justified, many Crusaders got sidetracked by their greed and their lust for power. So the Crusades became brutal and evil. One Christian source claimed that the slaughter of the Crusades was so great that our men waded in blood up to their ankles. During the Crusades, many people were forced, they were forced to convert to Christianity. And if they refused, they would put them to death. Probably not the best method for evangelism, okay? The idea of, uh, of conquering a land through war and violence in the name of Christ is completely unbiblical. Many of the, the actions that took place in the Crusades were completely opposed to everything the Christian faith stands for. And so for this reason, the Crusades have been really a black eye on Christianity ever since. And many... Many people have attacked the Christian faith. A lot of atheists and skeptics and people from other religions have attacked the Christian faith because of the Crusades. So how would you respond 
the people who use the Crusades as an attack to Christianity, as an attack on our faith. Well, for me, it, it, it's interesting that people who want to judge you or me today for what happened by other people hundreds of years ago, uh, you know, they, 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 they want to judge us for that, but they won't spend one minute regretting the death of millions of preborn babies or the persecution and slaughter of Christians throughout the world the last few centuries and even today. And, and so my response to, to those people who would use the, Christ, the Crusades as an attack on Christianity and use it to attack my faith today would, would be to ask some questions. I would ask them, well, do you want to be held accountable for the actions of people who lived over 900 years ago? Do you want to be held accountable for the actions of everyone who claims to represent your faith or your lack of faith? I mean, trying to blame all of Christianity for the Crusades is like blaming all Muslims for Islamic terrorism. It's like blaming all atheists for when China had their one-child policy and they were killing children. But the Crusades were bloody, and in many ways they were immoral and unethical. So then what does Christian activism or, or crusading look like today? Then, If a physical crusade, if a holy war isn't what we believe God is calling us to do, then what is he calling us to do? Well, in response to what we know about the crusades, I believe he's calling us to do several things. I believe he's calling us to know his word. You know, many people, they joined the crusades because they were misled. And the reason that these people were, being, were easily misled is because they didn't know God's word. Now, it's understandable that they didn't know God's word in the Middle Ages because many were illiterate and they didn't have access to the scriptures like we do today. But I guess there's really no excuse for us today. If you've been a Christian for a while, you know you have access to so many teachings and you have access to so many Bibles and translations today, there's no excuse for us today. You cannot simply rely on someone else to teach you God's word. You've got to, take, you've got to be active in it. You've got to be reading his word. If you can't read, you can listen to it. There's so much technology. Listen to his word. Study it. Memorize it. Teach it to your children. Teach it to others. I love what Luke said about, about the Christians that lived in the city of Berea. In Acts 17.11, he said that the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness. And then what did they do? After receiving it, they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Did you catch that? When Paul, we're talking the Apostle Paul, we're talking the one who penned over half of the New Testament, whenever he would teach, the Bereans would go back and they would examine Scripture to make sure what Paul was saying measured up to Scripture. And they were commended for this. This was a good thing. And we should do the same thing. Whenever you hear someone teaching, whenever someone is preaching from God's Word, including when I do it, go back and study the Word for yourself and make sure that you are not being fooled. The psalmist said, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. So young people, how do you live a life that honors God? You live according to his word. But how can you live according to his word if you don't know his word? You don't know what his word says. And so the psalmist continues. He says, I will seek you. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. And he says, I have hidden your word in my heart, meaning I've studied it and I've put it to memory. Why? 
that I might not sin against you. The Crusades were a huge reminder as Christians, we need to know God's word. If we know his word, we know that a pilgrimage cannot save us. If we know his word, we know that his kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If we know his word, we know that our citizenship is in heaven. If we know his word, we know that money cannot buy our salvation. We need to know what we believe. We need to know why we believe it. The time for ignorance is over. Remember in our spiritual warfare series, we talked about the armor of God and we discovered that the sword of the spirit, that piece of armor, is our only offensive weapon in the arsenal. And that sword of the spirit is what? Is the word of God. But when we lose our knowledge of God's word, we lose our standards, and then there are no moral and ethical boundaries. So Christian activism starts with knowing God's word. God is also calling us to inform the conscience of our community. Our our role as Christians, as the church, as, as a local church in a community, is to know God's word so that we can fully inform the conscience of our community. What this means is that we speak up for Christian values. When community leaders come to an important decision about the community, we need to be so engaged that they think about what we stand for as they make those decisions. You remember that passage we looked at last week in 1 Thessalonians 4? It said, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your hands just as we told you, so that. Why? So that your daily life will win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Did you catch that? We live a life with the intention of shaping the conscience of our community. That's what it means to win the respect of outsiders. They're going to think about us when they come together to make important decisions. So maybe you're not able to influence presidents, governors, but you can influence the people around you. You can get involved in your schools, your cities, your neighborhoods, your clubs, your sports teams, your associations, and you can help to inform the conscience of those people in those places. The Apostle Paul used, used fight terminology a lot. Listen to how he used it in 2 Corinthians 10. He said, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. We don't fight like the world does. He says, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have, the divine, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So we don't wage war as the world does. We don't fight with swords and spears and guns to make our point. Our weapon is the word of God. And when the word of God informs the conscience of a community, things start to change. Finally, I believe that God is calling us to love without judgment. To love without judgment. Now that word judgment has gotten all twisted up in our culture today. Calling something wrong or sinful is now considered by many to be judging. But Scripture reminds us that the people we are not to judge are actually unbelievers. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 5.12, he said, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are we not to judge those inside? He's saying we're to hold our accountable, our brothers and sisters in Christ, but why would we expect those outside of Christ to act like Christians? That's kind of insane, isn't it? Right? But 2 Corinthians 5.10 reminds us that there is a coming judgment. And everyone, everyone will face that judgment. And Christ is the judge of all mankind. 
He said, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So one of the biggest issues with the Crusades is that these these so-called Christians were bringing judgment on other people. They were the ones who were deciding who lives and who dies, right? They were the ones who were, they were forcing people to, to convert to Christianity. And if they didn't convert, then they were putting them to death. Now, obviously as Christians, we want to see more and more people come to Christ. Threatening people with violence or berating people, that's not the way to do it. Love is. So check out this little video I, I made earlier in the week. The sound's a little bit off, but I think you can get it. So this is my daughter, Avery. And Avery is awesome. She is fun-loving. She's creative. She is a joy to be around. Well, recently, we got a new kitten named Ollie. And I want Ollie to realize how awesome Avery is. I want Ollie to love Avery like I do. I just got to figure out how to get Ollie to love Avery like that. Say I love Avery. Say you love Avery. Don't make me do it, Ollie. I'll do it. Half Nelson. Half Nelson. Avery's awesome. Say you love her. Say you love her. Say I love you, Avery, and I don't pull the trigger. Say you love Avery. Come on. Say you love Avery. Hey. Say you love Avery. Say, I love Avery. Headlock, headlock, headlock. Say you love Avery. Say you love Avery. Say I love you. Say I love you, Avery. Say you love Avery. Say you love Avery. Love Avery. Say I love Avery. Don't make me do it. So maybe the best way for me to get Ollie to love Avery is by introducing them and letting them spend time together. Well, hopefully in time, you'll see just how awesome Avery is. Now we just need to tell Ollie about Jesus. I'm going to go start some water in the bathtub, and uh, we can force him to be baptized. So again, threatening someone is not the way to bring someone to Christ. Love is. I heard one preacher say that, that what we need to do as Christians is introduce them to Jesus, almost, almost like we're setting up a date, right? We're not forcing Jesus on them. We, we just want them to know, get to know Jesus, and, and love does its work. And this is, this is really the test of our time, isn't it? How, how do we treat people who disagree with us? It seems that in our culture, for, for most people, the way to treat someone that, to, that disagrees with us is to shout them down or to post mean things on social media or to belittle people. So do we judge them or do we love them? Do we convict and execute or do we persuade the repentance? The answer is, as Christians, we, we love people. We don't have to agree with everyone to love them and treat them with kindness and compassion. Please understand, love does not mean approval. Love does not mean agreement. Love does not mean we compromise. But love does mean caring enough to share the truth, even to prayerfully persuade. But in the end, if they are not convinced, love means letting them walk away. It means letting them remain in sin. That's hard. 
but it never means we stop praying for them. It never means we stop looking for opportunities to influence them. And so this is, this is what I'll leave you with today. I, I want to love you enough to share with you that Jesus loves you. And that only because of his death and his resurrection can our sins be forgiven. And we can have the hope of eternal life. But I won't force Jesus on you. I can't force Jesus on you. Because love is not forced. Love is a choice. And the choice is yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are a lot of things we can learn as we look back on history, both good and bad. And I pray that we would learn from history that our, our mission as followers of Christ is not to conquer worlds and take lands. Our mission is to make disciples. And we don't do that with threats. We don't do that with violence. We lovingly share your word. We lovingly share you with others. And God, I pray that, that people would be drawn to you, not our persuasive words. They would be drawn to you. They would be drawn to your love, your compassion, your grace, your forgiveness, your kindness. And so God, I pray that we would introduce others to Jesus. So God, I pray that, that we, would be, we would be more compassionate and loving in our world. That outsiders, those outside of Christ, would not look at the church as, as people who are immoral and unethical. That we aren't people who abuse our positions. God, you have, you have blessed us. And every time you give a blessing in Scripture... That blessing is to be multiplied. So we have been blessed with the knowledge of Jesus. We have been blessed with grace and salvation. But that is not a blessing we are to keep to ourselves. It is a blessing that is to be multiplied. So I pray that we are blessed to be a blessing. We are a light to this world. And we are a light that points people to Jesus. May you increase, may we decrease. <laughs> may you be glorified, not our own petty kingdoms. May your kingdom reign. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And so this morning we want to give you an opportunity to respond. Again, the love of Jesus is, is freely given, but it is a choice for you to accept it. It is a choice for you to follow Jesus. It is a choice for you trust in him. We will not force Jesus on you. He doesn't need to be forced. He is worth giving your life for. He is worth living for. He is worth following. We would love for you to know what it means to follow and love him. So if you have a response to make about Jesus, I'm going to be up here to your right this morning. We'd love to talk with you or even just pray with you if you need it. Will you stand and say?